Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Eric Skwarzynski, and I'm sitting down today with Jesse Beyer. Jesse is a speaker, author, and mental health advocate who's on a mission to help those around her design lives they love waking up to. Jesse believes that discussions are the missing ingredient in removing the stigma surrounding mental health. Because of this, she's on a mission to help those around her feel valid, heard, and appreciated in their mental health struggles and know they're not alone. Jesse has landed coverage in dozens of media outlets, including Best Colleges, Saving for College, Best Money, Go Banking Rates, Fundera, and UpJourney. And her articles have been featured in Medium, Thrive Global, Harness Magazine, Savannah East, SAS Magazine, and Life Goals Co. In addition to her media appearances, Jesse has presented to thousands of people at numerous universities and organizations nationwide, including Missouri State University and Ferry Godboss. Jesse holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Psychology from the University of Minnesota. Outside of her personal life, Jesse is a canine search and rescue trainee and a proud pet mom. Jesse, welcome to the show. I know we just gave a little bit of your bio, but can you give a more personal introduction to my audience and let them know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited yeah, of course. to be here. When I first heard about your podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be able to speak <laughs> to this audience. You know, It sounds weird, but trauma is definitely kind of a personal passion of mine and helping right. people find ways to heal that aren't just going and sitting in talk therapy is something that's really important to me. So as Eric mentioned, I'm an author. And I write about trauma healing methods, specifically natural and integrative therapies. So things that aren't talk therapy, things that connect to that mind-body healing process that can release that somatic part of trauma. So I speak on that. I write on that. I have personal conversations about that. And that's what I'd love to chat with you guys about today. That's awesome. And this passion was fueled by um, some personal experiences with trauma. So can you give a little bit? I I read, um, and I'll put a link to the show notes. I'm going to just go ahead and plug it now. Uh, if you go to Jesse's website and you can find all that information in the show notes of the episode, uh, you can download the first three chapters of one of her upcoming books, and it does go into the things we're going to be talking about today. So be sure to go check that out. But 
in that first chapter, you give context for your personal experience with trauma. Can you just share a little bit about that and how that impacted your trajectory of your life and career from that point? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in high school, I really struggled with my mental health. I mean, I was depressed. I was self-harming. I was in this really codependent relationship with another individual who was also struggling with his mental health. And I decided that I was going to be the one to save him. I put his world on my shoulders and I would do you know whatever it took to keep him alive and keep him happy. Now, unfortunately, that relationship ended with his suicide attempt and my prevention of it. But that whole time period in my life, those years, and especially that night of his suicide attempt, are just stemmed in so much trauma and so much emotion, right? Just all of that heightened fear and anger and panic and everything swirling through you. And so as I went to heal from that process, I went to one day of talk therapy and I was so uncomfortable with it that I literally ran out of the building and I never went back. And I I truly believe that my healing journey would have been a lot smoother, a lot more of a straight line if I had that professional help, but there was no way I was going to get that in talk therapy. So as I started to heal and I started having conversations with my friends and things like that about their stories and everything they'd been through, I saw how much just simply speaking up about your story and sitting there and saying, hey, I've been there. I can relate a little bit to what you're going through, even though I haven't been through the exact same thing. That is so powerful. People feel heard. People feel like it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say that they've been through those things and it doesn't make them weak or broken or anything like that. Like I said, as I healed more and had more of these conversations and saw how much of an impact it made, it was like, I can take that story and that horrible thing that I went through and that happened to me and turn it into something that can be such a force for good and so powerful and help other people. That whole time period of my life doesn't have to just be bad, right? Like I can use right. something good and it's just kind of evolved from there. Yeah, you're definitely, I mean, doing a lot of good work. Like I got to listen to you on a couple other podcasts and I've seen a little bit of your work that you've been, you know, putting out. I think one of the things you hit on in the early chapters of your of your um, book that I really liked was you said that trauma is hard to define because it's a unique thing for everybody. And, you know, one thing that's, I mean, definitely visible uh, on the show and in the group um, that I have on Facebook for people who listen to the show everybody processes things differently. And I never expect to talk about this, but it just comes up. But like um, I mentioned on the show, I had an experience with, um, a, a, I, I don't want to use the label minor, but with sexual abuse um, when I was a younger, a younger kid and talking about that on the show, there's, there's a tendency to downplay. I think, especially you mentioned this in your book as well. There's a tendency, especially for guys to downplay, um, traumatic events as not being a big deal, but you know, this year and part of it's from the dealing with the trauma by doing this show. Um, I was able to actually communicate to my wife. Who's the first person I ever talked to really about it, you know, how that trauma affected me. And I said, it did actually severely affect me, even though in my mind, I was constantly trying to treat that by saying, Oh, it could have been worse. It could have been repeated. It could have been someone else. It could have been, you know, I was just, I would just basically say like, well, at least I wasn't raped or at least I wasn't beaten or, or, you know, putting all these quote unquote worse labels. But the thing is we kind of have to judge our trauma based on how it, how much it's emotionally impacting us. Um, and I think you really hit that really well. So talking about trauma, most people, when they talk about dealing with trauma, the words that they say are PTSD or, you know, I feel triggered by something. And you kind of hit on the fact that, yeah, PTSD is definitely something that can come from these events, but 
trauma manifests in many different ways. Can you talk about the different ways that trauma manifests? Yeah, absolutely. I could probably spend the next three hours talking about how trauma manifests. I don't know that we have three hours, but... (laughs) Fair enough. I'll keep it shorter. I'll keep it shorter. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, PTSD is the traditional and most commonly thought of response to a traumatic event. And that is a very psychological and psychiatric diagnosis. Beyond just PTSD, there are a couple different um, psychological diagnoses as well. And the way that those are diagnosed kind of just depends on how long your symptoms from the trauma last, how soon they started after the trauma, and sometimes based on the severity of them. Now, what I don't love about the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for psychologists and psychiatrists, is that they like to place very strict limitations on what counts as trauma. Hmm. So in their mind, trauma isn't something that deeply affected you emotionally. Trauma is a sexual assault, witnessing a death, being beaten, right? Like they put these very strict limitations on what it is. So while I don't love that, I think it is important to understand that there are somewhat less severe reactions to trauma that can result in a slightly less severe diagnosis, things like adjustment disorder versus PTSD. But it doesn't mean that you are any worse or less or more broken or anything like that to have one of those differing diagnoses. Now, beyond the psychological approach, trauma, especially childhood trauma, can result in a myriad of different adult physical and economic conditions. So there's these things called ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, basically childhood trauma. And the more of those you have, the more likely you are to develop these adverse adult health outcomes. It's everything from um, having a lower, a lower salary. It can be cancer. It can be liver disease. It can be other mental health disorders like depression or bipolar disorder. Um, it can be obesity. It can be uh, teen pregnancy. Like anything you can think of can sometimes be traced back to childhood trauma. So maybe you're not the type of person that's sitting there going, oh, I have nightmares. I have flashbacks. I have whatever these psychological symptoms are, but you're sitting there saying, okay, um, I'm I'm obese, I have cancer, I have liver disease, whatever that is, that could still be a symptom of trauma. So that could go in a lot of different directions. I was actually familiar with the term ACE or ACE because I actually worked with someone as a videographer shooting courses about that process. And there were a couple of things, you know, when you're sitting there editing and taking that stuff in, there was a couple of things that were mentioned. And this goes back to just how big or how small something can impact. Um, But he said some certain things like, you know, even the vocabulary that's used toward children can impact. Like one of the things he mentioned was, you know, the parents who always tell the kids, well, you're just a troublemaker. They always say that. They always say it can eventually manifest in them taking on that identity because they've been told that over and over again. And I was like, how can something, it kind of scared me because especially now as a parent, I'm always like, I'm always super careful of like how I'm phrasing things because it, it is like kids are resilient, but I don't think they're as resilient as society would lead us to believe. There's a lot of lasting damage you can do with the wrong actions. So I'm curious from your perspective. So we're obviously dealing in the religious realm. And I know later on in your book, you do get into the religious culture in the sense of healing and things like that. But for people who are in a strict religious culture like the IFB, where you know there's a lot of shame, guilt, et cetera, put on sexuality in general, a lot of times people feel like they're experiencing two forms of abuse, like the time that they're abused physically or sexually, and then they feel abused when they come forward and share that they feel shamed or damaged or, you know, 
judged. Can you talk a little bit about how to create a safe culture for people to come forward and share about their trauma and how to create an environment that like welcomes dialogue with people um, about their trauma? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to say, though, before I get into that is what you mentioned about that chapter in my book that talks about the church. And that was probably the most polarized chapter that I wrote in the book, because the first part of it is like, this is all the ways the church can help you heal. And then the second part of it is like, this is all the ways that the church can mimic trauma. So it's like a very, you know, it really depends on how you interact with the church and how um, you feel safe in that environment or not safe. So just because I did write about that in my book, I just don't want anyone who's listening to think that like, I'm saying the church is the all and end all to healing because oh, I definitely right. understand that it's not. Um, but as far as creating a safe space, it really just comes from that foundation of trust. And that trust isn't built when someone comes to you and says, I've experienced a trauma or I'm struggling. That trust is built long before then. So if it's a one-on-one relationship with someone, it's all about, did you show up on time? Did you do the dishes like you said you would? Did you react well when they told you that they got a promotion at work? It's all of those little tiny things that build that foundation of trust that that person knows that when they have that big, scary, traumatic thing, they can come to that person and know that there's already some foundation built there. As far as if that's an organization, the same thing kind of comes true, especially when you're a child and you're looking at this organization, you notice, even if you can't put into words, you notice how they react to Susie's mom getting pregnant again. You notice how they react to Bob losing his job for the fifth time. You notice how they react to those things. And as you grow up and you see those same reactions over and over, you will then make your own determination about whether that's a safe space and a safe organization for you. So the best way that that organization can be a safe space and allow for those discussions to happen is just to make sure that they are welcoming those discussions about other things as well. So they're not pushing any members out that don't fit into their nice little mold of what a good positive member looks like. They are, you know, living what they preach about sitting with the broken and sitting with the weak and sitting with the thieves and everything like that. And, and embodying that love and that compassion and that understanding so that when those things happen, whether they're in the church or out of the church, but when those traumatic events happen, the church feels like a safe and understanding space instead of one that they have to conform to something to be in order to fit in. Trauma is a tricky thing because obviously the the mental side you have to address at your own pace um, in a lot of ways, but also – you know, with a lot of situations around trauma, there can be situations that need to be dealt with at a higher level than, you know, a one-on-one. And so one of the questions that's come up a lot with my audience is, you know, and it's one of the questions I've scratched my head about on the show, there's people who've been abused in one form or another, and it's something where they should go to law enforcement, they should go to someone with a higher power. But when you're an advocate for victims, you know, they may be comfortable telling you, but not taking that action. Can you talk about how to have that conversation with someone and how to, you know, again, we need to address the mental side, but there's also, there's sometimes a time frame in which we need to get someone to be able to at least get it out and then be able to focus on, you know, the recovery process, like instantly. Can you talk about how people can have those conversations in an actual helpful way? It's funny you bring that up because I'm actually a sexual assault advocate myself. So I have a little bit of a perspective from, from that angle as well. But the thing with telling your story, even if you're currently living in that dangerous and abusive environment and you need to get out for your physical safety, 
The thing about telling your story is that it can be just as dangerous to try to pull it out of someone too quickly as it can be to leave them in that space. And it's such a tricky situation. Um, you, I mean, I'm not a lawyer by any means, so don't take this as legal advice, but you could get into the discussion about, okay, if you tell someone and the person who's being abused is a minor, are you a mandated reporter? If you're a medical professional, yes, you are. You have to tell the police. And so that brings up a whole nother level of, you know, how do I handle this? But I'd answer this question in the same way that I did the one before is that you as the receiver of this information, you have to create a safe space for them. You cannot then turn around and push them to do something that they're uncomfortable with. Tell them that you should do this, should do that. This is what you have to do. You just need to be that sounding board and that support system and give them options. You know, you can turn around and say, Hey, look, I see this is happening. I hear you. I love you. And I'm scared for you. Let me help you. Let me get you connected to some resources. Come stay with me for a week, whatever that is. But at the end of the day, you can't force them. And if you try to force them, then you could be pushing them away even further. And then you're no longer that support system for them. Right. Yeah. You could be doing just as much mental damage by forcing them to to share their story or their trauma. Yeah, it is. It. I mean, you nailed it with the word tricky. It's, um, you know, because I, I know firsthand, like, I've had people reach out and with adults, it's a lot different. Like if it's a kid, I think it's almost, I can't think of a situation with a child where like I wouldn't (laughs) go report that. I mean, you kind of have to, but with adults, especially when it's like an adult is sharing something that happened to them five years ago or 10 years ago, obviously in the listener's mind, I'm thinking we need to get this guy behind bars. So this doesn't happen to anybody else. But it also like the studies are there. I mean, people often don't come forward till 10, 15, 20 years later, because that's how much time with no help and nobody helping them deal with the trauma it can take to combat it on your own or to get to a place where you're so broken, it just comes out, you have to share it. And so I guess a way to to think about this and something I'd be curious to your perspective on, is there a way to productively, because so many people, you know, keep airtight about stories and, you know, so many times when someone comes forward with a story, you're like, oh, I had no idea. That's usually people's response. I had no idea that happened to you. And, you know, I know for me, one of the big things with what I experienced is nobody had really at an appropriate time or at a time where I was ready to ever asked me a question that would lead to a normal way to segue into that conversation. And again, I did not expect to talk about myself, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but giving, you know, I just want to give context cause I'm curious about this stuff is, you know, like, like my wife would ask me because I was doing this podcast and doing other stuff. She'd ask, you know, did they, and even before that I was super like passionate about this stuff. She's like, did something happen to you? But it was always, I never felt it was at a good time and I'm not hating on her, or shaming her for when she asked it just for me, it could have been for someone else been the right time. But for me, it wasn't the right time to say yes. So I would just say no. Um, and then after telling her, I, I was asking my mom some questions. If she remembered me saying anything or anything like that, she's like, how come you never asked me or something? And I was like, well, it's not exactly like Christmas dinner. Like you're going to be like, Hey, you know, it's, it's hard to find those times. So, is there a way like maybe families or churches or organizations or, you know, whatever group can, can set up a space where, you know, or a culture of people being able to come forward? I know you talked about building trust, but is there a right time to just ask generally like, hey, I know that we were involved in a church where this stuff happened. Did anything ever happen to you? Or I know we were a part of a school where someone, you know, because most parents, I feel like it is like, either don't talk to us about anything like that or it's, you know, 
or it's the very vague, like if you ever need to tell us anything, you can tell us. And like, it sometimes feels disingenuous. So what do you think is the key to promoting that kind of dialogue starting? Cause that's the hard part is getting that conversation going. Absolutely. Well, with what you just said, you know, Hey, we've been in this church where this happened. Did anything happen to you? I think that's a great approach. I mean, if you're close enough with that person and you'll know right. that you're close yeah. enough. Don't yeah. like, it's not the random people. stranger on the street. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. But, I mean, you'll know. And I think that's a great approach. And what I want to bring up about that is that you said your wife had asked you at least once, maybe multiple times. And you said no. And you said no. And then you finally opened up. So whether or not you answer that first time, you felt comfortable enough with her that you were able to tell her that story with mm-hmm. the approach that she took. And that's important. If the person doesn't open up to you the first time, don't badger them with it. Not every time you see them, you know, but at appropriate times, it's okay to just remind them that like, Hey, I can see you're a little stressed around this topic. Anything I can help you with. You want to talk, yada, yada. I think that's fine. The other thing that I've seen work really well, both in my personal experience and talking to other people as well is I'll start with myself. If I sense that like, Hey, I think, I think there might be something here. I'll sit with that person again. If I feel comfortable with them and be like, Hey, I want to tell you about what I went through in high school. I, I feel really comfortable with you. I want you to know this part about me and I'll start opening up about myself or I'll start opening up about my experience with therapy and just talking about myself lets that other person know that, Oh, it, it's okay. I can talk about this stuff. And again, maybe they won't do it the first time, but it's definitely not uncommon for them to turn around and then say, Hey, I kind of know what you've been through. This is what happened to me. And then you can have that dialogue from there. Something that you say is pretty helpful is that someone doesn't have to feel like they're hitting. A lot of times when you approach someone, like it's easy to tell them like, hey, you know, you realize you're a victim or you realize that you are this or you are a, you know, A, B or C. And you really hit on the fact that someone doesn't need to fit some predetermined trauma box. Like it doesn't have to be something where, you know, they are this because this happened. And Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, the pivot you made from calling yourself a victim to a survivor and then the understanding that you've developed of meeting people where they want to be met and, and treating, calling them by the labels that they are calling themselves instead of putting on like, well, according to the CDC, you know, based on the symptoms you're exhibiting, you're this, you know, cause that can't be helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of ties in with what I said about those psychiatric diagnoses as well. Sometimes it's helpful because you know you're not alone, right? There has to be someone else else with PTSD out there. Right. But on the other hand, it's like, that's not quite right. You know, it feels like that shirt you're trying to squeeze into that just doesn't quite fit you right. And that's something that I think is really important as well as the question you asked is because the medical system is going to be calling you a victim. The legal system is going to be calling you a victim. You're a victim of sexual assault. You're a victim of abuse, whatever that is. And that's a very stagnant term. If you continue to call yourself a victim, you're going to be stuck in that trauma. You're going to be there as a victim forever, you know, giving yourself the title of survivor, even just saying it, you know, you sit up taller and you're like, I made it through something. I'm not in something. I made it through something. And that I think is a very powerful pivot. For me, it took recognizing that what I went through was something serious enough to give myself the title of a survivor or a victim. You know, when you're talking at the beginning about kind of comparing trauma severities and comparing, oh, well, you've been through worse or the starving children in Africa argument, you know, like someone else always has it worse. That was me for so long because I would start to open up to my friends and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm feeling. And they would turn around and be like, oh my gosh, I know what you're going through. And then tell me a story that I 
thought was way worse than mine. And I was like, oh, well, I, I can't talk to them anymore because they have it worse and complaining about nothing. And right. that mentality was very detrimental, as I'm sure you can understand. Yeah. And as I started to realize that like, hey, I have some battle scars. Like I have been through stuff and it is okay for me to own that instead of being ashamed of that or thinking that I'm weak or just being dramatic because of that. <laughs> that enabled me to make that shift from I'm either nothing or I'm a victim to I survived this. I came out on the other side and I'm able to kind of own that. And like I said, use that as a platform to help other people. That's awesome. So talking about past, cause we've, we've spent some time talking about coming to terms with something that's happened or at least acknowledging trauma, both from the side of the listener to the person sharing their story. How does the healing, I mean, obviously you've written a book on how to heal uh, from trauma. So I feel like we should talk about that. And you know, that's something I think is important is it's easy to look at all the horrible, awful things that can lead to trauma. But I also want to give a little bit of hope and light to how to overcome it. Now, you've already said that talking therapy is not for everybody. And, you know, for some people, that can be a very stressful thing. It can be hard for them to, for me, I do not, I don't trust sitting down with someone that I'm paying to tell about my problems, you know? And um, again, I'm not saying it's bad for some people, but for me, you know, that's just something I'm not comfortable with doing. So what are some ways that, um, or some therapies you can use to kind of heal that, um, trauma and start working through, um, your situation? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And talk therapy. I mean, it's one of those things that it is so well supported by research. There are thousands of studies, thousands of practitioners, but if you are too uncomfortable to go in the first place, it is completely useless. And so what I talk about in my book are some natural and integrative alternatives that are often more effective for trauma. And the reason that they're often more effective is that they have that somatic component as well. So trauma is not just something that happens to your mind, that energy and that trauma gets stuck in your body and you have to have some sort of physical component as opposed to just sitting there and cognitively talking about it. You have to have some sort of physical component to release that somatic part of trauma. So these therapies, things like ecotherapy, equine-assisted therapy, craniosacral therapy, dance movement therapy. Again, I talk about nine of them. I'm not going to go into detail, but all nine of them here. They have that approach where, yes, you're working with a therapist, but often there's a co-therapist, whether that's the horse or nature or flower essences that help you work through that somatic piece as well. Right. So just to give an example to make it a little bit clearer, one of my favorites that I talk about is equine-assisted therapy. And with the EGALA model, which is the most common um, kind of regulating body for equine-assisted therapy, you are working with the horse and the landscape as metaphors. So you can move this horse from an unsafe place to a safe place, or you can you know, identify with a certain horse and say, this horse represents me. And as you take care of that horse, you are symbolically taking care of yourself. And that whole process allows you to start to move through that trauma healing process, open up those gateways, start to have those conversations with the therapist. And this is so powerful. I'll tell you a story um, that one of the therapists told me, they had a woman who came to their equine therapy facility. She wasn't there for a session. She just kind of showed up one day and she was out in the field with this horse and the horse walked up to her and kind of nibbled on her arm. And she's like, oh, that's so cute. And the horse did a lap around the field, came back, kind of bit her arm a little bit harder. And she's like, oh, ow, man, he really loves me. And um, the horse did another lap, came back and chomped on her arm. And she was like, ow, that hurt. And that sequence enabled her to open up about her abusive husband because it was cute. And then it's, oh, wow, he really loves me. And then, oh, it hurts. And that sequence that that horse just somehow intuitively sensed about her 
just completely opened the floodgates and she was able to start to tell her story to the therapist, work with that method of therapy to heal from that. But those co-therapists, like I said, nature, horses, flower essences, whatever it is, they have that intuition. They have that movement piece. They have that safety, right? Like a horse isn't going to tell your secrets to anyone. Mm. And that is kind of the key difference between you and me sitting down across the couch from each other while I'm taking a bunch of notes about you versus being out and moving and breathing and having that intuitive connection with some sort of co-therapist. Well, it's like you said, the the trauma is stored physically as well as mentally. And so talk therapy can tend to only address the mental side. Most forms of therapy that I'm aware of and most people are aware of all are mental and dialogue based. You call it thematic therapy. Is that the right term? Thematic, Yeah. So it's phys- basically physical release of that trauma. Mm-hmm. Is that the same reason that people who experience trauma a lot of times can tend to have th- um, like physical representations of stuff? Like someone who's abused may start doing physical activities that are harmful, like drinking or drugs or you know excessive amounts of pornography. There's a lot of different things that can happen stemming from abuse is that your body kind of naturally searching for those things and you search for unhealthy things or because when you're when you're saying it it's like okay these all seem like really healthy things but i don't feel like people naturally think to go to the healthy side to address their trauma if that makes sense it definitely does i think that those are more of coping mechanisms and okay. a way to shut off what you're feeling you know when you get drunk you're not thinking clearly you don't have all those oh, gotcha. painful thoughts going through your head so i think that those methods again i'm i'm not a doctor but i think those methods are ways to just shut off and turn off and cope with what's going on. Whereas the somatic piece, the way that dance movement therapy describes the somatic piece is that when you're in a traumatic incident, your adrenaline is going crazy. Your hormones are running crazy. Your heart is pounding out of your chest. And when you can't fight off that attacker, whether that's a car accident or a physical human attacker, when you can't fight that off, you're stuck. All of those hormones and all of that adrenaline just freezes and that stays in your body. That is the piece. Not necessarily biologically or chemically like, oh, I take your blood and you have more adrenaline than the average person, but that energy just gets stuck in your body. And as you start to heal, so many trauma survivors report feeling like a weight has been lifted. They feel lighter. They feel like that random phantom pain in their hip is now no longer there and they are allowed to you know, move and progress as the body should. Um, so that's more the somatic piece as opposed to those kind of coping mechanisms that are trying to drown out that fear and pain and, and trauma. So the unhealthy way of coping is shutting off the emotions, whereas the healthy is engaging with the emotions. Basically, that's kind of the difference. Engaging, yes. Um, but I'd say, I'd say more it's about acknowledging than engaging. Because okay. in a lot of therapies, one of the first sessions, you know, you might come down and you'll sit there and you say, I was sexually assaulted when I was 10. And the therapist is like, that's great. Tell me why your shoulder hurts. And they'll start very surface level and then slowly get deeper and deeper and deeper instead of just diving right in. So it's like recognizing that they're there, but not, you know, taking a sledgehammer to every wall that you've built up to protect yourself. See, I'm glad I brought you on because like I'm showing my ignorance and my questions of like, (laughs) (laughs) um, because in, I'm so hesitant giving advice on how people should address her. And that's why I want to bring people on is because I don't want to give someone the wrong advice because I've got my own traumas I'm working through and like, that's a messy journey for me. So I'm really glad that you're breaking that down because there is like, it's like almost embarrassing because exactly the word you just said of taking a sledgehammer to the things that you've built up, like 
I've literally said to people like, I'm, I just feel like I'm taking a sledgehammer to the things that I used to think, you know, and it, it really is like, it's, there's things that are so helpful, but they just, especially, and again, I'm, I don't want to speak for all people, but I know for me and a lot of people I've talked to after you get out of it, like you're just looking for something different and pretty much the first thing you find that doesn't make you think about the bad thing is what you kind of stick on. (laughs) So I I like the fact that you're kind of pointing out alternative therapies that you can be really intentional about. And it's still with someone who is, I think there is a place for experts in mental health. I think there is a place for people. I mean, there's a huge place for people in mental health, a huge place for people who help people manage their trauma. I think what you're really doing a good job of doing is breaking down the idea that it has to be the one thing that I see on every movie and TV show, which is a guy on a couch and a guy with a notepad or, you know, or the one thing that I know most people, including myself, get so much anxiety from thinking about doing is going and sitting down in a small group of 10 to 11 people and share, like that is not helpful, especially if you've experienced organizational trauma, like through a church or a Sunday school or a youth group. So this really good stuff. Um, is there any other ones that stand out to you as like, Hey, this might be a good option or even better. So is there a way that people could like, is there a site? I I don't know if you have a resource that lists out some alternative ways that people can, can experience therapy because like, I don't know, do I just Google, you know, (laughs) where do you find this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the last chapter of my book actually is like a one pager with links to licensed therapists or like a a database of licensed therapists in each of the methods that I talk about. So I'm very intentional as I go through my book to say, this is the licensure this person needs to have. This is the training. This is where you can find them because I don't want people just going to Google and being like equine assisted therapy and going down to Susie down the block who has no training at all. You know, I want that to be a safe environment. So that would be my first resource is just to make sure read the book, learn about the therapies, and then just focus on that last chapter to actually check out some people like that. Um, But the other therapy that I'd like to bring up that's different than um, equine assisted therapy or ecotherapy is EMDR. Have you heard of that before? I haven't. Okay. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And basically what it is, and it sounds crazy, is the therapist, it is indoors, it is one-to-one, but the therapist sits in front of you and they will move their hand back and forth in front of your face to stimulate both parts of your brain and reprocess those trauma memories. It sounds like hypnosis. It's not hypnosis. It's incredible, the power that it has. Hmm. But what it's looking at is that trauma memories are stored incorrectly than other memories that we have. So if you've been in a car accident, for example, assuming it didn't turn into a very traumatic incident for you, but if you've been in a car accident, you can think back on that and be like, oh yeah, I spun around and then I hit the wall and my neck hit the thing and that was pretty scary. And you're able to you know, be fine with it. But if you have a traumatic memory and you think back to that memory, your body can't tell the difference between whether it's happening now or whether it's happening in the past. You start to feel all of those emotions again at the same intensity. You start to relive that memory like it's happening at this very moment. That is just a result of incorrect processing of that memory. That's why it's so traumatic for you. And so what that bilateral stimulation does by waving your hand, the therapist waving their hand back and forth is it engages both parts of your brain and allows you to process that memory correctly so you don't have all of those emotions attached to it. Now, I will be the first to say that no one in the scientific community knows exactly why this works or the chemistry of why it works, but there are so many anecdotal stories out there, so many empirical studies that show the power of this. 
And that would be another really good method to try and work through if you're feeling like the, the mind part of trauma is potentially more troublesome for you than the body part of trauma. But I definitely suggest looking at that as well. Right. And I, I don't at all intend for this to sound reductionist at all because I, I, <laughs> I, I because I'm, I'm sincerely asking and it's more of a, yeah, I just, I just hope you understand my intention in asking this question. Cause I, I don't at all mean this cause I'm questioning. Cause I, I've looked into a lot of different things like this for myself. It, it does seem that, you know, you mentioned like there's not the scientific basis for that right now. Um, but it's helped people. And is there some element of, you know, in order for any kind of therapy to help you, you have to be going into it, wanting the help is it because it doesn't, for me, it seems like, like you'd mentioned that with talk therapy, like if you go in there and that sounds great to you, that that's going to help you, they'll probably help you. Um, same thing, like someone may be listening to, you know, the idea of taking care of a horse and like that idea sounds awful to me. Like, you know, that might, that might not be the right thing for them. Like, is there some element of going in with the expectation of being helped that has to be there? Like, do you have to, I guess what I'm asking is, do you have to be in any kind of mental state to be at the point where you can accept therapeutic help of any form? And again, I'm totally not asking that because I don't think, I think it's, you know, hogwash or something and we're not going to do it, but it's like, I'm just curious, I'm just curious what, where the brain has to be in order for this stuff to be most effective. Mm -hmm. I would say yes and no. And I will explain both sides for yes. I think you have to be at a point where you acknowledge that you want something in your life to change. And that's okay. why you're going to therapy. In the first so that's place. the, that's kind of the key, the big key. Yeah. I mean, if I put you in a car and I was like, Eric, we're going to therapy and right. I drag you to the therapy spot. Right. Like, that's not going to be super productive for you. Right. But I don't think you have to come in walls completely down and be like, just take me. I'm ready for healing. Yeah. Yeah. Of there's, course. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple, a couple examples that I'd like to bring up. One is with ecotherapy and one is with flower essence therapy with ecotherapy. You're in nature is basically the base of it. You're using nature as a co-therapist and the beauty of nature is that you can show up however you are and you still reap the same psychological and physiological healing benefits from nature. Hmm. So you can show up angry and broken and crying and screaming and get the same amount of healing as someone who shows up happy and feeling really ready to do the healing. Okay. With flower essence therapy, they actually did a study to check whether it was a placebo effect and they tested the effect of people's skepticism on the efficacy of the therapy. Okay. So they looked at people who were like, this is not going to work at all. And people who are like, yes, I'm ready. Let's do this thing. Both of them got the exact same benefits out of it. Wow. So okay. it wasn't a placebo effect, no matter how skeptical you were, that's you were still getting the benefits. That's the word I was right. looking for, placebo right. effect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd say yes and no. Um, and I would say that the no is more applicable to natural and integrative therapies than talk therapy. I think you have to be more in a state to get benefits from talk therapy than right. like ecotherapy. Right. Because things that are naturally good for the body, like fresh air or, you know, spending time somewhere that's visually stimulating, like that's going to be beneficial versus some people may not benefit conversation or writing their thoughts or that kind of like manual things that people choose to do. And I think there's something spiritual about it as well. And there's very little scientific proof of this, but in my opinion, when you go out in nature and you feel that peace and that connection, at least that's what I feel when I'm in nature, that in itself is healing. Whether I'm out there right. with the intent of looking at something that I'm struggling with, it's just like, ah, oh, I can breathe and I can be, and it's all going to be okay. 
And I think that those kind of spiritual ties from some of these natural therapies are just as healing as the science behind why they work. Right. That's awesome. Bam. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's really good. <laughs> like, but uh, <laughs> one of the biggest concerns to me with this is the amount of improperly trained people. Like I said, I don't call myself a therapist. I don't call myself a legal professional. I don't call, I'm here to let people share their story and I'm out. I don't, I don't want to tell people they should or shouldn't do anything related to their trauma. Um, and the sad thing is most people don't have that self-awareness and there's a lot of people, especially I'd say the two biggest categories I see this are with family members of survivors of trauma and because everybody's mom thinks that they're an expert in their kid, which, yeah, can they help? Definitely. I'm not saying that they can't help, but they're also not a licensed and trained professional. And the other area I see that with the community I'm working on is I see a lot of pastors who rightfully recognize abuse as being wrong. They don't want people to be abused, but they make the move of offering like, hey, if you've been abused and you need free counseling, I'm here to help, you know, but they are not at all prepared to help someone. So obviously it's important to find someone who's trained in that stuff. But would you say it's something that if a pastor is listening to this or a church is listening to this and they're trying to equip people is it is it something that they should look at either training their staff in? Is it something where they should just have a list of people who, um, and obviously not them themselves train, but hire someone to train their staff in this stuff? Or is it something where they should have a like a guide of people nearby that are solely focused on that? Like, what what can what can organizations do to equip themselves to really help victims of trauma? So if you are supporting someone who is a survivor of trauma, you fall into one of two categories. You're either a trained, licensed professional or you're an advocate. And both of them are equally important. They're both so needed and I'm not trying to diminish either side of that. But if you are an advocate, so you're that friend or family member, you are what I do, you are what you do, you're a pastor, whatever that is, your role is to create that safe space where people feel comfortable coming to you and opening up to you, you acknowledging their trauma, holding the space for them, and then saying, here are places you can go to get additional help, to get professional help, to get that different level of support that you need. So whether that's as simple as here are a list of people I can refer you to, or you bring someone on staff who is a therapist and you can say, hey, let's bring Sarah into the room. Let's all chat with her and see what we need to do from here. However you want to approach that, that is definitely completely acceptable. But the role as an advocate, I mean, my role is to help you feel comfortable enough to talk about it and ask for help. And then I pass you on to the person who can help you. Exactly. I'm not there to give you therapy. And I think it's so important that you brought that up. I think that's great. But yeah, I mean, looking at who is local, who is professional, who is trained, who do I trust? Do I know anyone who's a therapist? Um, Can I bring them in? You know, like maybe they're there three hours a week pro bono just to see if anyone needs to come in and talk about things, especially in an environment where there has been a history of sexual abuse and sexual assault and things like that. Um, But yeah, I definitely think that drawing that line between advocate and therapist is so important. And I'm glad you brought that up. You mentioned someone might experience something that is from the outside severely traumatic, but they don't recognize it as such. Like there's people, there's people who literally are abused or, or raped or fill in the blank and they're like, Oh, it's no big deal. Like I don't feel, I don't feel any damage from it. I don't feel like it's affecting me. Like it happened. I moved on. Do you think that that's a, 
is there any way in which that's healthy to to say like you know hey something bad happened but i just moved on or do you think that's something where you should acknowledge the fact that what happened wasn't good and wasn't you know it wasn't something that should be shrugged off because i know you mentioned everyone deals with things differently i'm curious what your what your thought is on that I think that if that person honestly is like, it happened, it sucked, but it's fine and I moved on, then that's fine. I mean, no need okay. to force trauma on people that right. have a trauma history, you know? Everyone, yeah, yeah. everyone defines trauma in their own way. Now, that being said, if it was something like, I was sexually abused for 10 years and I'm totally fine with it, in the back of my head, I might be thinking, are you sure or are you just trying to right. you know, put on a strong front there? And again, that's not my role to come in and be like, but actually, let me tell you that that was horrible. My role, again, is to be supportive and hold the space for them. And if they decide that at some point down the road, they want to acknowledge that and they want to dive into that, then that's there and I'm there for them, you know? But I wouldn't say that it's ever my place to come in and be like, well, you passed this level on the severity list. You are now a trauma survivor. You know, that's, that's just not your place. And vice versa, like you don't meet these requirements that I have. So you, your trauma is not valid. And I think you make a, such a great point of hitting both of those. Cause that's, that's one of the big ones that drives me crazy is when I see someone who's like, oh, they were only, only had this happen or they only, you only experienced this. And you mentioned in the book, like the, the very base level is like when someone complains about something and we throw out like, you know, there's people in different parts of the country that don't have any food and you're going to complain about, you know, getting hit one time or, or, you know, whatever that thing is. I just really like, I just really like the way that you help people categorize, you know, or I guess help people not categorize their trauma and really, like, I mean, like I said earlier, like it seems like trauma should be measured by how much it impacts you versus how much society says it should or shouldn't impact you. You know, I mean, I definitely appreciate everything. Like there's a lot to think about and, you know, even things that came in and I was like, oh, I think this, this, and this, like you've kind of changed a lot of um, mindset stuff I had. And I think that's important. You know, I want to give you a chance to talk about your book a little bit and who the audience should be for that, who you think it would be helpful for. And then can you just tell people where they can find you, find your, find your stuff. Can you just tell people like a little bit about the book, where they can check it out and then where they can connect with you? Absolutely. So I wrote, the book is called How to Heal and I wrote it as the guide to everything I wish I knew when I was healing from my mental health struggles. Because I, like so many people thought it was talk therapy or bust. And when I learned that there were so many different options, I'm like, dang it, I wish I had this. So I wrote a book about it. It seems natural, right? Um, But this book really is for trauma survivors and loved ones of trauma survivors. It's not tailored towards a professional audience. It reads like a letter from your best friend. It reads like I talk. So it's not this textbook that you're going to have to wade through. And what it really does is it looks at, okay, what is trauma? How does this affect your life? What are some of the stigmas around it? And then it moves into nine natural therapies that you can use to help release your trauma. It goes through why they work, how they work, what the research is about them. Um, When you go to a session, what's it going to look like? So you don't have to walk in totally blind and be like, I don't know what's going to happen. You have a little bit of an idea of what that therapy looks like. And then as well, like I discussed, where you can find licensed professionals in that specific therapy. So like I said, that comes out on May 5th. You can read the first three chapters for free on my website at justfireinternational.com forward slash chapters. And then the book will be out on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the major retailers. And I will definitely be posting about that on social media at which you can follow me at Justfire International on Facebook and Instagram. 
amazing perfect well i mean yeah we could talk like you said we could talk for three four or five hours about this and um i definitely maybe after the book comes out and i'm able to read through the whole thing maybe we could do a a follow-up to this but i really really appreciate your time and sharing this and i think uh this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm wanting to get out there is just some information. Obviously you and I are not the uh, be all end all of, you know, someone's journey, but I think just being aware of the different options out there is so important. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.